Good morning, church. Good to see everybody out here this morning. So go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. The title of this sermon is Integrity Needs No Oaths. And so once you're there, if you're able to physically stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. This is what the Lord says. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it's God's throne or by earth because it is his footstool or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. This is the word of God. Let's go to our our Lord in prayer. God, we just uh, come before you this morning and we ask you to um, illuminate the scripture for us. Through the Holy Spirit, let us be able to see what it means that we rightly divide your word, God, and that we rightly apply it and that you convict us and change us and shape us into the image of our our Savior, Jesus, in accordance with your word. I pray, Lord, that I won't mess it up and that, um, you know, you'll just preach your word through me and um, that your people, again, be edified, that the lost would come to know you and be saved, be justified, and that in everything, God, that you would be glorified. And so we just, uh, again, ask you to be with us this morning. We thank you that we're able to go through your word, and we pray all these things to you in Jesus, our Lord's name. Amen. Please have a seat. Most of us were taught by our parents when we were little kids, we were taught that it's not right to lie. We were told to tell the truth. Now, if you were raised in the church, your parents likely reminded you many times that Satan is the father of all lies. He was the first liar, and you don't want to be like him. I know that's what we would tell our kids. Well, I wish I could say that only kids have a problem with this. Everybody does. This is such a pervasive part of human experience that all societies come up with ways to try to force people to tell the truth, especially on important things. The most common way this is done is through oaths. So people will be like, swear to me that you're telling the truth. Swear on your mama. Or, or put something on the line. If you're lying, I get your Xbox. Now the question is, why do we come up with these measures? It's because people like to lie. In courtrooms, people have to swear an oath to tell the truth. I remember, I remember being on a jury where the accuser was actually lying to get an innocent man thrown in prison for breaking her heart. And as the defense attorney was mounting more and more proof of this, it became obvious. And at one point with phone records, he was able to prove that she lied, put it out there for everybody to see, and of course she doubled down. And I remember it was like being in a movie. He pointed at her and yelled, tell the truth. And I'm like, you know, but I had to, I had to of course, keep myself calm because I'm on the jury. Um, but it was just a very interesting experience. The threat of perjury didn't even seem to matter to her. I think a lot of us, at least if you're, you're my age or older, you remember back in the late 1990s, the president of the United States lied under oath. And then he got backed into a corner and there was another hearing where he was more or less questioned about his lying under oath. And do you remember what his answer was? Well, it depends on what is, is. And of course, he was just playing a game. He was calling into question what words actually mean, and he was doing this as a loophole to get out of the fact that he lied under oath. And I think most of us at that time, we were appalled, and rightly so. But I'm also sure that if God were to put us on trial, he would be able to show that we are masters of loopholes as well. It probably wouldn't take God long to show that. Now, the reason I bring all this up is because Jesus addresses it in our text. In his day, like our own day, people lie, and they don't do what they promise. And because of this, people will invoke oaths and vows as if that somehow will make them more trustworthy. Well, Jesus is going to rebuke that very idea. And so here's the point of the text for the note takers today. A heart of integrity needs neither oaths nor vows. 
A heart of integrity needs neither oaths nor vows. Now, how do I know that's the point? Well, Jesus will show us in two simple steps. First, he's going to summarize what the Old Testament teaches on oaths and vows. And then second, he's going to teach us how to keep it. So he summarizes what the Old Testament says, and then he teaches us how to keep it. And when we're done and we see what he does here, we will see clearly that a heart of integrity needs neither oaths nor vows. It all comes down to integrity. So as we come to the text this morning, I think Jesus is covering a topic that should convict a lot of us. But before we jump into it, I want to set the text in its context. We are in the Sermon on the Mount, which, as you know, is the most famous and profound sermon ever preached in all of history. Jesus is primarily teaching his disciples, but he's also secondarily teaching the multitudes who are listening in. This means he's teaching first to those who follow him how to live a life that honors God. But then at the same time, he's inviting those who do not yet follow him to repent of their sins and believe and follow him. They too could then be people who uh, live lives that honor God. Now, there are many amazing points that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount, but above all other points, his main point is to answer the question of who is the kind of person or what is the kind of person that flourishes. And we are at the point in his sermon where he's showing us that the person who flourishes keeps the law of God. They keep the law of God and they tell others to keep, or they show others, they teach others to do the same. And to help us understand this, how we could keep the law and how we could teach others to do the same, Jesus gives us six examples of what it looks like. He quotes six commandments or teachings from the Old Testament, and he tells us the true intent of it as it relates to our hearts, and then he gives us real-world application. And by doing this, our Lord has consistently been making one thing clear. It is not enough to simply keep the law on the surface. It is not enough to discipline yourself only in outward behavior. Instead, all the commandments first speak to the heart. That's where it starts. That's where everything comes from. Therefore, even if you don't violate the letters of the, or the letter of the commands with your hands, you could still break the intent of the commands every day with the thoughts of your heart. Now, he proved this so far with murder and adultery. You shall not murder, right? That's the sixth commandment. Well, it's not just about not killing people. It's also about not hating and envying people. It's about not being violently angry at people. It's about also doing good for people rather than wishing ill upon them. That's how you keep that commandment. Adultery isn't only about not sleeping around on your spouse. It's also about not looking at someone and lusting or sexually fantasizing about them in your heart. Jesus said, instead, get radical. Get radical and get rid of anything in your life that causes you to lust or will even start you moving closer to a position of committing adultery. Keeping this commandment ultimately, besides being loyal to God, is also about being loyal to your spouse. This is a loyalty that is for life. So you don't divorce and remarry for a frivolous reason. Jesus only gave one acceptable reason for that. Your spouse has to cheat on you sexually with another person. If that reason is absent, then you're simply not allowed to divorce or remarry. Now, Paul gives one more exception, and I covered that last time. But that's it. If you divorce and remarry apart from those two, Jesus says you are guilty of adultery. So there's a lot of different ways the law shows we could be adulterers. Now, between murder and adultery, Jesus showed us how to read and keep the law three times already. Today, we're moving to the fourth example. He's going to bring us to the issue of oaths and vows. He moves to the issue of swearing that you will do something or even swearing that you're telling the truth. And what he shows is a lot of people are liars. Even worse, they're blasphemers. They use God's name in vain. They give false testimony. They have no integrity. And so I want you to think about that for a minute. Do you ever say you're going to do something and then you don't follow through? Do you ever say to somebody, I swear I'm telling the truth when you know you're lying? Well, if you do or have or still are, the Lord has some words for you. So I think it's very important that we all all listen up. So with that said, Let's take a look at what the Lord has to say. Let's start with Jesus telling us what the law actually says on this. So look at verse 33. 
Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. Now, if you notice, Jesus is following the same pattern he used with the three previous Old Testament references. He tells the people, you have heard that it was said to our fathers, and then he either will directly quote the Old Testament or he will summarize what it is saying. He'll summarize an idea from the Old Testament. Here in this verse, he is not quoting a single Old Testament verse, but instead he's summarizing what dozens of them say when you put them all together. And so what I plan to do is quickly look at a lot of the Old Testament verses on this subject. There's two things I'm trying to accomplish by doing so. First, I want us to see that Jesus' summary statement perfectly captures what the Old Testament says about oaths and vows. I want you to see it with your own eyes. And then second, I want to clear up some confusion on this. A lot of Christians never read the Old Testament. In fact, many haven't even read the whole New Testament. And then the numbers drop off a cliff for those who haven't read the Old Testament. And by the way, that is not acceptable. We, I mean, he dies on a cross for us. Oh, I can't even read three chapters a day. Look, we need to read the Bible. And the reason people get confused about this subject is because they don't. And so what happens is they get confused about what the Bible teaches about oaths. Why? Because the only verse they've ever read on it is our verse today. And if you only read this and you don't understand it in the broader biblical context, you will assume that all oaths are always bad. And that's not what the text is saying. And so we have to go over the whole thing to be able to understand that. It's something we need to clear up. You want to know why? Because I'm not comfortable with contradiction. And back in verses 17 through 20, Jesus started this whole section off by saying he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He said not one letter or stroke of a letter would pass away until the universe passes away. He then took it one step further and said anybody who fails to keep the least of the commandments and teaches others to do the same will be least in the kingdom. So there is no way Jesus would tell us to fail to keep a commandment. He then starts off our text today, as I will show, by accurately summarizing what the law and the commandments have to say about oaths and vows. But then when you read the verses that follow, it sounds like he's telling us something different. And that should be a problem if he is, but he's not. Anyhow, so the point is we really need to understand this. And I figure the best way to do that is to quickly look at what the law teaches about oaths and vows. And you might wonder, why do I keep saying oaths and vows? Aren't they both the same thing? No, there, there, there is a difference. An oath is a statement where you call on the name and authority of someone greater than you as an extra assurance that you're telling the truth or that you're going to keep a promise. A vow is where you make a pledge to the very name and authority above you itself that you're going to do something or tell the truth. Let me illustrate it. Here would be an oath. I swear by God and all that is holy that I will pray for every family in this church at least once per month. That's an oath. I'm saying it to you, but I'm swearing by God. A, a vow is where I'm talking to God. God, I promise you, I swear to you, I'm going to pray for everybody here at least once a month. That would be a vow. So an oath was the first one. A vow was the second one. There is a difference. It's subtle, but it's there nevertheless. The word that Jesus uses in the Greek can refer to both. Now, looking back at verse 33, again, he summarizes the whole Old Testament teaching by saying this. He says, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. We see both concepts there. Okay, the first part, don't break your oath. I swear I'm going to pray for you, right? Don't break your oath, but also keep your oaths to the Lord. God, I promise I'm going to do this. It's oaths and vows just being covered by the, the same word here. So he is talking about both. And also, when he says you must not break your oath, he literally means you must not swear falsely. That's what the verb means in the Greek. Now, there's two ways you could take that. If you say, as God is my witness, I'm going to show up to small group tonight, and then you don't show up, you swore falsely. You just did. In the name of God, you said you would do something, and you didn't. Now, whether you were intentionally trying to deceive with the swearing, or if you meant it but then flaked out in the end, it's irrelevant. You still swore falsely. You still said in the name of God that you were going to do something and you didn't come through. That is false swearing. Now, the second way to take swearing falsely is perjury. 
like the president did. It's where you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. But then you lie through your teeth. In other words, you violate the ninth commandment about bearing false witness. Now, the reason I bring up those two options for swearing falsely is because these words in Greek cover all these options. And so does the law. The law covers all these options, not lying, not following through, not keeping pledges you make directly to God. It's all there. And the words Jesus picks here, again, captures all of that. It just does. So given that Jesus is summarizing the law's full teaching on this, I think we should, again, look at all these elements in it. Don't lie and then, and then say, I swear to God, when you know you're lying. And also make sure you follow through on what you promise. With that said, let me share several passages from the Old Testament about oaths. I'm going to start with Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20. Look at what it says. It says, you are to fear the Lord your God and worship him, remain faithful to him, and take oaths in his name. See what that said? It says, take oaths in his name. He commands Israel, worship him, be faithful to him. But if you're going to take oaths, he wants you to take it in his name. So it's a privilege. It's a privilege, and it's being encouraged here. But at the same time, God makes it clear you better mean what you say when you do take an oath in his name. If you look at Leviticus 19.12, he says, Do not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God. I am the Lord. And then he says this in Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to put himself under an obligation, he must not break his word. He must do whatever he promised. Now, let me quickly talk about both of those. In the Leviticus passage, God says you profane his name if you swear in his name falsely. And remember, that covers both perjury and you not following through on what you said you were going to do. That is profaning his name. And then in the Numbers passage, God says, I'll go back to it. He says, when you make that vow, you are placing yourself under an obligation. By doing so, you have added an obligation to yourself, right? And so you have to carry it out. And if you don't, then go see Leviticus again. You have profaned his name. And that is a violation of the third commandment, which is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Now, we often think of that as using the Lord's name as a cuss word, but most scholars agree the commandment's not talking about that. But don't use his name as a cuss word. That's blasphemy. Okay, but the third commandment is actually more about oaths. It's about calling on God's name in an oath or a vow and then not following through. You've misused his name. You've made it vain. You've made it empty. You've acted like his name means nothing because it obviously does mean nothing to you if you say you're going to do something in his name and then you don't do it. Now, King David also makes it clear that when you make a vow... Fulfill it. He says in Psalm 50, 14, offer a thanksgiving sacrifice to God and pay your vows to the Most High. And the second half of that verse seems to be what Jesus is quoting partially in the second half of his statement. He says, make sure you fulfill or keep your oaths to God. He's essentially saying the same thing. So if we put this all together so far, God permits Israel to swear oaths in his name. It's actually encouraged. But doing so places an extra obligation on you. You better fulfill what you promised. Thus, the privilege of swearing oaths comes with a warning. Now, you might be thinking, well, what if I don't want to swear an oath at all? That's fine, too. The law allows that option. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 21 through 23. This one kind of covers it all. It says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to keep it because he will require it of you and it will be counted as sin against you. But if you refrain from making a vow, it will not be counted as sin against, against you as sin. Be careful to do whatever comes from your lips because you have freely vowed what you promised to the Lord your God. And so pretty clear there. In verse 21, Moses says, if you make a vow, you can't drag your feet in fulfilling it. you got to jump on it right away. Keep what you said. God requires it of you. If you don't, he counts it as a sin against you. But in verse 22, it then says, but listen, nobody made you swear an oath. You don't have to swear an oath. If you never swear any oaths, you haven't actually sinned. 
So, given that no one makes you swear an oath, verse 23 then reminds you, you put this on yourself freely. And you combine that with numbers, you put an obligation on yourself freely. So he says, once it comes from your lips, you better do what you said. Once you fire, ready, aim, you fire, you say it, now you're obligated to it. Okay? That, that's what he's getting at there. And King Solomon, I think, is reflecting on that same passage of Deuteronomy. He essentially says the same thing in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. He says, when you make a vow to God, don't delay in fulfilling it, because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than that you vow and do not fulfill it. Okay, so we see a consistent voice in, in the Old Testament, in the law, on this. If you make an oath in God's name, keep it. But you're safer to never swear an oath at all. And if you never do, you're not in sin. Okay, so with all that said, let's go back and look at what Jesus said in verse 33. He said, you have heard that it was said, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. Doesn't that perfectly sum up just what we saw? See, Jesus is a masterful interpreter of the Old Testament. The law teaches clearly we have to keep our oaths, don't break them, fulfill them, but you don't have to keep the oath you never made, right? Pretty simple. But if you make an oath, you keep it. Now, the Old Testament is filled with a lot of examples of godly people who make oaths, fulfill them, and get blessed for it. For example, Abraham puts his servant Eleazar under an oath to find a wife for his son Isaac. Abraham himself swears oaths and keeps oaths with nearby kings. David and Jonathan swore an oath to each other of loyalty. In Psalm 132, verse 2, David asks God to remember him and bless him because of a vow. Right? So, so we see this. And then even God. God swears an oath by his own name, since there's no name higher that he could swear by. That's what Hebrews tells us. And he swears that to Abraham to let Abraham know for sure that, listen, all the promises are going to be fulfilled. So we have a lot of good examples of people doing oaths, and it's a, it's a good thing. But at the same time, the Old Testament shows us men that rashly made oaths to their own hurt such as Joshua, swearing an oath to the enemies of Israel because they tricked him, and then now he has to protect them rather than remove them from the land. Or Jephthah offered to sacrifice the first thing that walked through his door. He swore an oath, sacrificed the first thing that, that walks through the door, and it happened to be his daughter. Now, God would have never required that sacrifice, but he went and sacrificed her anyway. King Saul swore an oath to kill anyone who eats food before they have victory over the Philistines, not realizing his own son then went and ate honey. Now, fortunately, the soldiers would not let him kill his own son. Even in the New Testament, you have Herod Antipas swore rashly after his, wife, his wife's daughter danced for him. He then says, I'll give you anything. That dance pleased me so much. She's like the head of John the Baptist on a plate. And he wasn't wanting to kill John, but he said that oath in front of everybody. So to save face, he had to kill John the Baptist. And even Peter the Apostle, when he was denying that he knew the Lord, like Jesus said, he starts swearing by God that he doesn't know the man. And then the third time, the rooster crows. And so I think we can also see that oaths have got people in trouble. They've been good in the Old Testament, but we've seen they're bad as well. So with oaths, you have a great opportunity to glorify God. They can invite blessing, but also with oaths, there's a lot of opportunity to dishonor God and to bring curses into your life. It all depends on whether or not you plan on being an honest person. Not just plan on being an honest person, if you are an honest person. If you have integrity, oaths are no threat. They could be a blessing. But if you're flaky, then oaths could be your worst nightmare. But anyway, the reason why I did this survey of the Old Testament on this subject is because it will help us understand what Jesus says next. If Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, and he will not teach others to break even the least of the commandments, then it's important that we know what the law and the prophets say on this. And that way, when we read what he says next, we can rule out some of the extreme interpretations that people sometimes give. So with that, we've seen Jesus give us an excellent and concise summary of, the law, of what the law and the prophets say about oaths and vows. Now we're going to turn to Jesus teaching us how to actually keep God's true intent of these commandments. 
So look at the first part of verse 34. Jesus says, but I tell you, don't take an oath at all. Now, that is a shocking statement if taken at face value. Jesus just got done summarizing the word of God, and then he says, but I tell you. In other words, what I'm about to tell you is Jesus has more authority than what you heard from the word of God that was said to our ancestors. And so what's this thing he then says, but I tell you, don't take an oath at all. And the reason why that's shocking is because God allowed them to take oaths. Even his summary statement showed that. But now Jesus is saying, don't do it at all. I thought Christ came not to abolish the law. Is he abolishing oaths and vows with this statement? Now, for good reason, Christians have been perplexed by this and have given a variety of answers. Some say, yes, he just abrogated the law here. His word has has greater authority, and so he just canceled Moses. Moses is out. It's just the law of Christ, which they say is different than the law of Moses. Now, others will push back and say that can't be what's happening here because he just told us he didn't come to abolish the law. So this has to be a statement of exaggeration. We can still take oaths. And then you'll have other people trying to find a spot somewhere between these two positions. This verse also causes a lot of folks to worry. Believe me, as a pastor, I have to comfort people over this sometimes. Why? Well, we all sign contracts to buy houses and cars, which is a written oath specifying payment terms. And so people are like, well, I need a car and a house. Have I sinned by signing that? And then I was forced to be on a jury. We swear oaths in court. And wait a minute, church, you made me swear oaths in my wedding. And if you've ever joined the military or you're a police officer, you had to raise your hand and swear an oath to protect the Constitution of the United States of America. So in all these cases, are we violating Jesus's command? Is this coming from the evil one, as verse 37 says, if if we are violating his command? Is the only way to be a faithful Christian, is it to stop serving in courts and stop signing contracts and stop serving our society in the fields that require oaths? And those are important jobs. Is the only way we could be faithful by pulling away? The Anabaptists, which that's like the Amish, the Mennonites, the German Baptists, they believe this very thing. And that's why they create separatist societies cut off from the rest of us, because they believe that is the only way to stay faithful to their very literal reading of what Jesus said here. But the question is, are they right? Should should we be worried that we sometimes take these oaths? And the fast answer is no, they're wrong. So let's pray and get out of here. No, uh, I, I think this definitely needs some explanation. I want you to think about what we've already seen in the Sermon on the Mount so far. In fact, this passage provides for us a good opportunity to do an exercise on how to interpret the Bible correctly. So the first question is this. Should we take isolated verses out of context or should we let the surrounding context tell us how to rightly understand a verse? Which one is it of those? context, right? Let me illustrate. Let's pretend I wrote you an email. And in the middle of the email, I say this. I'm sad that you're going through this hard time. Cancer is a terrible tyrant, but we know that God is still in control. I hate you having to go through this ordeal. Now, what if somebody plucked the first three words in the last sentence away from the rest? Those three words were, I hate you. And what if they then said, your pastor's email proves that he hates you? In the clearest possible terms, he says, I hate you. And you're like, no, no, that's not what it means. What else do the words I hate you mean, man? You know, that's what people do when they pull Jesus out of context. And so if they did that, would they be rightly interpreting my letter? No, the context is I hate you having to go through the suffering. Not I hate you, right? And so it's very clear that surrounding context is necessary. It's the same thing with the Bible. Jesus says, don't take an oath at all, but don't just lift that from everything else. There are things that he has said right before this, and there's things that he's going to say right after it, and it's going to help us. They're going to give us huge clues in how to interpret this. So let's talk about what comes immediately before it. He sums up the Old Testament teaching on this. That's what he started with in verse 33. Okay, he sums it up. And what did he say? So he sums it up. What did he say many paragraphs before that? That he didn't come to abolish even a single command of the Old Testament. So that, what he said back in verse 17 through 20, means that he agrees with what he's summarizing the Old Testament to say in verse 33. 
That you have to come to that conclusion, right? So he agrees with it. Therefore, when he says, but I say to you, he's not contradicting it. In fact, you have to look at the other three times he has said, but I say to you. In those times, did he contradict what the Old Testament said? No, each time he said, you've heard it said this, but I'm telling you it's even more. Let me show you, show you even more so how this is right and what this means. So if that's how that works for the first three but I tell you statements, then that is how it is going to work for the fourth. So he cannot be contradicting what the law says. So the Old Testament says such and such about oaths, but what I'm telling you is it's saying more than what you think, okay, not less. And so just from what we can see from the passages right before, we know Jesus wouldn't contradict himself. But there's another thing we saw as well. Back when he was talking about adultery, just a few verses ago, he used hyperbole. Remember that? You might say, what's hyperbole? Hyperbole is when you purposefully exaggerate with an insane kind of statement in order to make a point. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off. He was not literally telling us to mutilate ourselves. He used an intentional, exaggerative statement to make the point that we need to get radical, okay? And so if he's willing to use exaggeration and hyperbole just a few verses before, it stands to reason he might be doing the same thing here. And there's even another thing that we could consider from the stuff before, something we saw last week when we were talking about divorce, Jesus compared divorce and remarriage to adultery, even though those two things are not normally connected. Why was he able to connect them? Because the accepted practices that were happening in his day were using divorce and remarriage to commit legalized adultery. So the practices of the day connected those. And so he had to correct it because it was wrong. So just off that, let me summarize what we could point out from what immediately came before this verse. Jesus said he will not abolish any commandments. He uses extreme exaggeration to make his point. He teaches about the law. He quotes it, but never contradicts it. Instead, he expands it. He shows us even better how to keep it. And we've seen that he addresses the common sins of his time with the things he is saying in this text. Right? That's what we could see just from before. And so that gives us a big hint. It should force us to ask another question. Okay, if we've already seen that then, is there a major sin going on in the time of Jesus concerning oaths and vows? If so, we need to know what that is because then we can look at what he says and see if, oh, he's obviously talking about that. And I'll tell you, there definitely was a sin going on in that time. And Jesus tells us what that sin is in the verses that follow. So this is where the verses that come after that verse also help us. So look at the rest of verse 34 and verses 35 and 36. He says again, don't take an oath at all. Now he's going to explain. He says, either by heaven, because it's God's throne, or by earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black. Now there's a reason. Jesus mentioned heaven, earth, Jerusalem, and your head. It turns out the Jewish teachers of his time said that you must not swear in the name of God. It is too holy. We're not even going to say the name of God. And that's why the Jewish people, and by extension, everybody, we have forgot how to pronounce the name of God. Yahweh is just a guess. Jehovah ain't even close. But, it's, you know, but we don't know how to say his name. We only know how to spell it. Because they stopped saying it. And now no one could actually swear in his name. That's why Jews today, again, they don't know how to pronounce it. Well, that's a problem. Why? Because the very first verse I showed you from the Old Testament today, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20, says, remain faithful to him and take oaths in his name. So if they say, don't take oaths in his name, but God said, no, take oaths in my name, you already have a problem. The Pharisees were contradicting it. Now, they would say they have a good reason. God's name's too holy. Third commandment says, don't take his name in vain. So if we never say his name, we can never take his name in vain. And that's the whole hedge building that they do. But they're violating God's command to use his name. It, 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 it's crazy. They're replacing what the Bible says with their tradition. So then that brings another question. If you cannot swear in God's name, then how do you swear oaths and how do you make vows? And what they said is you could swear by heaven, 
You could swear by earth, you could swear by Jerusalem, and you could swear by your head. And you could find all these discussed in the Mishnah, which is uh, a collection of rabbinic rules, rabbinic halakha that they call rules or laws, some of which, a lot of which, go back to the time of Christ and before. And so, again, we find that you could swear by heaven, earth, Jerusalem, and your head, and that just happens to be what Jesus is commenting on here. See, their idea was you're not to say God's name, and therefore, if you break your oath, then we could say at least you haven't taken his name in vain. You've lied, but you haven't broke the third commandment. You've only broke the ninth commandment. Okay, so that's, that was their rationale. Um, so they were putting a hedge around the law. But listen, God doesn't need hedges around the law. This hedge, again, made them violate another law. And we know human nature. Whenever you start creating more laws, a lot of times they become loopholes that you could use to get out of what the real rules are. And so people can now swear oaths on these things and break them and say, at least I didn't violate the third commandment. And so Jesus had a big problem with this for a lot of reasons. First, the whole point of oaths is to convince people that you're going to keep your word. If you give a word to them that they are depending on you keeping, right? This is something they really need. People weren't supposed to swear oaths over like common things. It's supposed to be really big things. And so if somebody's needing you to come through and they're terrified what happens if you don't, then they hope you'll swear an oath so that they could rest better that night. Because if you swear an oath, now you've put yourself under an obligation and you're likely going to make it a number one priority. That was the whole point of oaths, okay? And so you're more likely to carry out your word, but with this loophole, you could swear. You could then break your oath and say, well, it wasn't really in God's name. I swore by Jerusalem. Who cares about that? And so what this did then is it morphed into a vast system of sanctified lies, and even the religious leaders broke their oaths all the time. And I'm just going to throw my little editorial statement out here. If you need an oath to trust what people say, then there's already a problem with the people, right? If I can't trust you for what you're saying, but always need everything backed up with an oath, we've already got problems of integrity and trust amongst ourselves. Well, things got so out of hand that the people weren't just swearing about major things anymore. They were swearing about every dumb thing that they talked about. So if someone said, man, I saw something great in the marketplace yesterday. Yeah, right. That never happened. I swear in my head, man. You know, and so they would just swear about everything. And Jesus had enough of it. He did. First, we know that lying is a sin with or without oaths. It's a sin. And the Old Testament makes that clear. Just because you didn't swear in God's name does not mean it is okay to lie. And if you swore that you would do something that you're not going to do, guess what? You lied. It's that simple. Second, and this is the most interesting part to me, these loopholes didn't do, they didn't do what they thought they were doing. Okay, look at what Jesus says. He gives the rationale for this. He says, don't swear by heaven. Why? Look at it again. He says, because it's God's throne. Now, Jesus is going to bring up oaths again in Matthew 23 when he's rebuking the Pharisees. And look what he says about this very thing in Matthew 23, verses 22. He says, and the one who takes an oath by heaven takes an oath by God's throne and by him who sits on it. Notice what he said? In other words, when you swear by heaven, you're still swearing by God. What? Why? Because heaven's where he dwells. And so that's where his throne is. Therefore, if you're swearing by heaven, you're swearing by God. All right, fine, Jesus. I'll swear by earth. Well, that doesn't fly either. Why? Quote, because it's his footstool. In other words, God made the earth. It belongs to him. If you swear by the earth, then you're swearing by its owner. Uh-oh. Okay, can't swear by the earth. Fine. I'll swear by Jerusalem. Nope, can't. Okay, Jesus, you've got to be kidding. I can't swear by Jerusalem. Why? He says, because it is the city of the great king. And there he's quoting Psalm 48, verse 2. In that passage, God himself is the king of Jerusalem and then calls Jerusalem the city of the great king. So if you swear by Jerusalem, since it is God's city, you also are swearing by God. And you're going to have to answer for every single lie you have ever sworn in his name and all these little loopholes you are still swearing in his name. And so they should be terrified at this point. But then there still might be somebody saying, all right, there's one option left. I will swear by my head. My life belongs to me. 
Well, not if you came to the conference yesterday, right? It doesn't. And in verse 36, Jesus made it clear. Do not swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black. In other words, if your head is your own, then old man make your hair young. Or bald man make your hair grow back. I can't. Nothing I could do about that. And young man, make your hair turn old. You can't. Well, I thought it's your head. If you own it, do what you want with it. Well, I can't. Why? Because you didn't make yourself. You don't belong to yourself. You don't own your own life. All creatures are under the sovereign rule of the King of Kings, God Almighty. So, your life is not your own. When you swear by your head, you're swearing by the owner of your head. And the owner of your head isn't you, it's God. No matter what you're trying to swear your oath by, if you think you're getting away from swearing by God and misusing his name, you're failing every single time, every single time. So pretty much he shot down all of their foolish loopholes. Every lie they told was not only a lie, but he's saying you've also broke all the oaths and, and vow commandments. You've, and pretty much every broken oath is blasphemy against the name of God. It's a violation of the third commandment. You took his name in vain, and that's also a violation of the ninth commandment because you have sworn falsely. You're racking up sin upon sin upon sin just because of the stupidity of how you want to talk. That's really what this is coming down to. So with all that in mind, do you think when Jesus said, don't take an oath at all, it's because they, uh, so do you think that the reason why he said that, or no, here's how I'm trying to say it. Why do you think he said, don't take an oath at all? It's because they think the oaths that they are taking won't get them into trouble. But every oath unfulfilled will get you in trouble. So if you're going to be this foolish in how you make oaths, please, for the love of God, stop swearing oaths. This is what he's saying. Stop it. Because you guys have no integrity. If you're a person that doesn't keep your word, then make no oath because you are asking for trouble. So when we understand the immediate context of the text, as well as the historical context, it seems very unlikely that Jesus is putting an absolute prohibition all the time on all oaths, period. And there's another layer of Bible interpretation we should bring into this. Contextually, we looked at what came before, what came after, we looked at the history. The next question should be, is there any place that Jesus later takes an oath? Is there any place the apostles later use an oath formula? Because if so, then that would mean they are not interpreting Jesus' statement here in absolute terms. They're interpreting it as a general rule, but not an absolute thing that always must be followed. So, the question is, did Jesus take an oath? I think it's pretty clear that he did in Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 and 64. This is when he is being placed on trial by the religious leaders who are conspiring to have him crucified. They've been accusing him, accusing him, accusing him, and he hasn't said anything. It's just they're silent. And then the high priest is going to say something. And when the high priest says something, now Jesus talks. So let's look at it. Here's what it says. But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said it, Jesus told him, but I tell you, in the future you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So think about what we just saw there. The high priest put him under an oath. I mean, look at the language. I charge you under oath by the living God. That's as heavy of an oath charge as you could get. Jesus has been silent up to this point. If he rejected oaths altogether, he could just stay silent. But if he answers this question, he is agreeing to the stipulations of the question, which part of it was, you are under oath. Now, some people will say, yeah, no, no, no. What we see here is Jesus actually refuses to be under oath. He doesn't answer him directly, and he doesn't say the words, I swear, or I swear to God that I'm the Messiah. But that's foolish. When we stand in courts today, we are asked a question. Do you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God? And our only response is, I do. We're not the ones who say the words, I swear to tell the whole truth. No, they ask, the bailiff asks it, and then we simply say, I do. And everything we say after that is now considered under oath. And if you lie, it's perjury, right? So Jesus clearly there allowed himself to be put under oath. And... And so if Jesus thought it was wrong to always swear an oath, again, he just would have remained silent. And what about the apostles? Did they always think it was wrong? 
Well, Paul starts out Galatians with an oath. Galatians chapter 1, verse 20. I declare in the sight of God, I am not lying in what I write to you. And if you want another example, go read Romans chapter 1, verse 9 on your own. He says almost the same thing to the Romans. I'm not lying to you. God is my witness. I've been wanting to come and visit you. So there's oaths, right? And some people will be like, well, maybe Paul wasn't aware of what Jesus taught. Well, he sure was aware of what Jesus taught on, on marriage and divorce, wasn't he? And it's actually very clear when you read 2 Corinthians 1.17, Paul was familiar with what Jesus taught because he uses the same words. I'll read it. Paul says, now when I planned this, was I of two minds? Or what I plan, do I plan in a purely human way so that I say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? And just a little bit of context there. Um, And by the way, yes, yes, and no, no is exactly how Jesus says what he's going to say in the next verse in the Greek. It's almost a a quotation. So Paul told the Corinthians he planned on spending the winter with them, but then he ended up not getting there on time because things came up. Things came up he wasn't expecting, and it set him back a couple months. So the Corinthians are like, well, Paul doesn't keep his word. He broke his word. And so Paul's like, I did not. <laughs> you know, I didn't say yes, yes, and no, no. I'm still going to come to you guys, right? I'm going to be there in a couple months. It's just things set me back. But again, my point is the yes, yes, no, no language. Of course, Paul was aware of what Jesus said. And that same Paul in Galatians 1.20 and Romans 1.9 swears an oath. So anyhow, getting back to the text Jesus' main purpose was to forbid frivolous swearing. His purpose was to let you know that you cannot escape your responsibility to God in anything that you say. Whether you add an oath to it or not, you are expected to do what you say. If you don't, then you lack integrity. Anytime you try to find a loophole, You lack integrity. You just do. If your word is so useless that no one will believe you unless you have to add some grandiose thing to swear by, then like I promise you by the ring of power. I mean, if you have to say stuff like that, then you already lack integrity. So the question is, what's the solution? What's the application? What's the best way that you keep the law? Well, remember, the law never said you have to make an oath. Remember that? It said you haven't sinned if you never make an oath. It's just instead, you you just have to tell the truth. Don't lie. So in light of that, Jesus tells you how you could be on the right side of this issue every single time. Look at verse 37. He says, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. And literally in the Greek, if you want a wooden translation, he says, let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. That's what he's saying. But again, all of our translations smooth that out. Let your yes mean yes. Let your no mean no. In other words, no matter what, say what you mean and mean what you say. If someone asks you if you're going to the gym and your plan is not to go to the gym, then say no. Okay, just say no, I don't want to go. Or or don't say yes because you think it'll make them happy. If someone asks you if you're going to small group, don't say yes if you know you're not going to make it. Um, And by the way, little soapbox for a second. Guys, small groups are a big part of the Christian life. I mean, are our lives really so busy? Are we really doing, on average, so many more important things that we can't get together with other believers at least once a week or bi-weekly to, in a more intimate setting, go through the Word of God? I'm sorry, most of us do not have more important things going on. Some people might, but most of us don't. So I take that. I give that as an exhortation. Get involved in the small groups. And the reason why I'm saying that is I don't want somebody to say, hey, he just said if you don't want to go, say no. That's true, okay? We don't want you lying about it, but I don't want you to misquote me later. And this is one where I think this next one is one where I think a lot of us might have a problem. If someone asks you to pray for them, don't say yes unless you know you're going to do it. Otherwise, you lied to them. You lied to them. Your yes is not yes. Now, the main point that Jesus is making here is that we should treat all statements the same. And here's what I mean. Generally, there's two kinds of statements. You have statements that demand a commitment, and then there are statements that do not demand commitment. Statements that demand commitment require action on your part. So here's an example. Will you help out at the next evangelism event? If you say yes, that demands a commitment. You you need to show up. You have to follow through. A statement that does not demand commitment would be like this. 
Do you like food? Yes. Well, there's no commitment that comes from that. I'm not promising to, to do anything. No action is required on my part. And so the reason that oaths first came into being was so that people could be assured that you understand something's a statement of commitment. You do understand that you're supposed to follow through on what you said. Yes, I swear it. That's why oaths first came into existence to begin with. Well, Jesus commands you to put commitment in every statement, even the ones that don't normally require it. Don't have a hierarchy of things. Just be truthful in all of it. If you're truthful in all of it, then there's no need to make an oath or a vow. Now, again, if you have to make one to buy a car or a house or you have to swear to get in the army, that's different. And if you're going to swear for your marriage, that's different. But in general, we don't need oaths if we just treat all statements with the same level of commitment. And if we have integrity and, and we want to treat them the same, right? You don't need to add something special because you're talking about something important. If you're a person of integrity that commits to speaking only the truth because our God only speaks truth, then your word should be enough. When you have to add all sorts of oaths and vows just to get people to believe your word, or if you have to do that just to motivate yourself to keep the word, well, if I don't swear, I know I'm not going to do it. So I'm going to swear to make myself do it. Listen, you already got problems. Those are problems that have to be resolved at the heart level because Jesus says that comes from the evil one. And the evil one's going to use it against you. You're playing into his hand. If integrity isn't a good enough reason to do what you say, but you need that oath for extra accountability so you won't flake out, it means you're already a flake. So repent of the flakiness because the oaths aren't what's going to change you. Vows aren't going to change you. They're just going to provide Satan more opportunity to make one sin turn into two. You're giving the enemy uh, extra, extra ammunition against you. Okay, so just treat all your yeses and nos as the final word and follow through and you will be in much better shape. Now, your word will not be enough if you consistently fail to follow through. There are consequences to our actions. When you say you will be at a certain place at a certain time, but you consistently don't show up at all, then people have no reason to trust your word. When you consistently tell people what they want to hear rather than the truth because you like to people please, then eventually even the people you're pleasing will not trust your word. They're going to be like, oh, that person's a flatterer. I, I can't trust them to tell me if something's really wrong, if I have food in my teeth or whatever. They're, they're not going to tell me. And so remember, the heart of the, the Old Testament command is that you have integrity. If you make an oath, keep it, but you don't have to make oaths. Jesus is saying, keep your word, even if you don't make an oath, because the result will be the same. You will live a life of integrity. Well, some of you might be thinking, I struggle with this. How can I let my yes be yes and my no be no? As I said, and as Jesus has been saying, it always starts with the heart. This is a problem of the inner man or inner woman. It's a, it's a heart problem. It begins with your thoughts. It begins with your desires. So first we have to, at that level, desire what God desires. And he desires integrity and truthfulness. So what that means is when you're tempted to lie, before you say a single word in the mind level of it all, shake the thought off and commit to telling the truth. It might, you might have three seconds of awkward silence. That is better than lying. That is better than telling people what they want to hear. And so if this is a struggle, you have to think, okay, they asked me something. Ugh, I so bad want to tell them what they want to hear. But the Bible tells me to put off sin, renew my mind with scripture, put on the righteous opposite. The righteous opposite is the truth in love. So, all right. And then you tell the truth. Yeah, it might take a couple seconds, but that is where it starts. That is how we change the behavior. And ultimately, it might require you doing a lot of homework on what the Bible says about truthfulness, keeping your word, being trustworthy, uh, memorizing those verses, uh, doing all sorts of exercises with them that will help renew the mind, which will make this easier. Remember, Paul told us this in Ephesians 4.25. He says, therefore, put away lying. So put off. He says, speak the truth. That's what we put on. Each one to his neighbor because we are members of one another. That's how we end up beating this, by, by obeying what the scripture says on this. So when tempted to people, please, again, shake it off, decide to please God instead, and speak the truth in love. When you say you're going to do something, as soon as the temptation pops in your mind to flake out on it, rebuke that thought and immediately do what you promised to do. 
If you have a reputation of being a flake or a liar, but you start today doing what Jesus teaches us, your reputation will change. It might take a little time, but it'll change. Eventually, people's thoughts of you will be based on your recent behavior. So let's say like somebody needs help moving, and somebody's like, well, what about uh, Pastor Steve? And yet I'm I'm like 40, no, 65% of the time I'm a no-show, but I always say I'll be there and I'll even bring the donuts and then I'm not there, right? Then, you know, you'll know even if I say yes, okay, can we really count on him? Let's get somebody else um, just in case he's a no-show. But if for the next five months, anytime I'm asked to do something, I'm always there and I do exactly what I say, you're not going to think of how I used to be. You're going to think in terms of what's recent, that no, he is dependable. So yes, reputations change. It doesn't take as long as you think, but it does take some time. Now, you, will, you might say, well, what if I do change, but somebody keeps throwing the past in my face? That's on them, and Jesus is going to have things to say to them a little later in the Sermon on the Mount. I wouldn't worry about them. You just do what's right, and most people will start treating you according to your new reputation. Now, earlier... I said that this, this text, it should convict a lot of us. And, and the reason why is I think a lot of us in many ways fail to follow through on our word. There are just far too many times that our yeses aren't yes um, and our noes aren't no. And I know I'm guilty of this. Now, again, going back to the idea of contracts and things like that, it is okay to sign contracts. It's okay to swear oaths in court. But I want you to, to think about why these things are even necessary. The reason these things are necessary is because as a whole, we have not displayed the level of integrity to where those things wouldn't be needed. We expect that of the world. But the problem is, even in the church, if we say, hey, we shouldn't need contracts amongst each other, there's always going to be the people who will use it as a loophole that if it's not in writing, you can't, Judge Judy won't win you, award you the victory, right? And so because of that, even as Christians in this world, I think we still need contracts at times. But that is something, that's, a, that's a, an indictment against us. It really is. And so the more we can live in integrity, maybe one day this kind of stuff wouldn't be necessary. Our righteousness is supposed to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They kept coming up with loopholes to get around their word. So do we do the same? Do we look for technicalities to get ourselves off the hook? Because if we do, then we are not hitting the mark, not even close. So may we all commit to being people of integrity. I think a lot about the words that we sing. And none of the songs this morning, but some of these songs are, are songs we, we sing often. We'll sing, here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true. But do we mean that? Because we're saying it to God in the form of song. Because he does speak what is true. Go preach my word to those who are lost. Oh, I didn't mean that. Um, so then when we sing that song, are we lying? When we sing the words, break our heart of what breaks yours. Lostness breaks God's heart. Does it break ours? Sin breaks God's heart. Does it break ours? And if it doesn't, are we lying with our singing? When we sing the words, I surrender all, if we don't surrender our whole lives to God, then is our song saying yes, no, rather than yes, yes? And listen, you might say, okay, he makes a good point. I Henceforth, I will not sing, and I will not, <laughs> and, and I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> that is not... An option, okay? That is not an option because we are commanded to sing and we're commanded to speak the truth to one another so you can't stop singing and stop talking. The solution is to mean what you say and say what you mean and do what you got to to repent of the desire to lie when it's there, okay? So may that, that's our call. May we, may we say what we mean. May we uh, mean what we say. May we sing what we mean, right? May that all be there. May we have uh, just these hearts of integrity, because as Jesus said, a heart of integrity needs neither oaths nor vows. Now, if there's any unbelievers here, um, we're talking about lying today, and I know you've lied. If I said, have you ever lied before, and you say you haven't, you just lied right now. And you've probably lied a lot of times. And not only lies, you've probably stolen. Let's just be real. You've broken trillions of commands from God, and he's a holy and righteous God. And you could see, just by what Jesus preaches, he takes this seriously. And God takes 
takes this seriously. One day you're going to stand before that holy God as, uh, as the righteous judge and a book will be opened where your trillions of sins will be read back to you, both your thoughts and your actions. And you'll agree at the end, I am that bad. I guess hell is where I, I deserve to go. But what I'm trying to tell you is God provides a way of escape before it's too late for you. He so loved the world that he sent Jesus. And just understand what that means. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, added humanity to himself. He came here to live the perfect life where he never lied, never sinned, so he could give the credit of that perfect life to us. And then all of our trillions of sins, he took upon himself and was nailed to the cross so that the payment was made for them, so we would never have to be judged. He died for us. He rose on the third day. Everybody who turns away from their sins, which means to repent, and believes on Jesus as Lord will be saved. They'll be forgiven of all their sins because he paid for it. They'll be credited with his perfect righteousness. And that's just the way it'll work. You'll be saved. You'll be forgiven. You'll be clean. You'll never face the judgment of God. You'll be given a new heart and you'll be a new creature. And you will start to be able to grow into this way of living that Christ calls us to. And then on that faithful day when our Lord returns, you will be resurrected and live forever. That is the promise of our God to all who love him and believe on him. But if you stay in your sins and you refuse to repent, then only judgment awaits. And so we don't want that to happen to you. So we're going to pray and you could pray to God that God, I'm turning away from my sins and I believe on you. And if you mean it, if you really mean it and you give your life to Christ, then you'll be saved. So with that, we're going to pray and then we are going to get prepared for the Lord's Supper. Lord God,